One of the uh, one of my favorite characters in Scripture, and I'm sure yours as well. Uh, one of those that we always seem to go back to time and time again uh, to learn life lessons is David, right? We love David, and I think because David is somewhat of a complex person. Uh, he is, on one hand, uh, known for his professional success, but on the other hand, his personal defeats. And David, I think, in different facets of his life, we maybe see uh, ourselves to some degree, depending on what season of David's life that we're talking about. One of the scriptures that we always, perhaps, when you think about David and you think about his life and a kind of a capstone of his life, actually is spoken of in the New Testament about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And this is the scripture that, uh, again, is, uh, again, affirmed in the Old Testament and his calling. But in Acts 13, 22, kind of a capstone uh, after David is long gone, this is what the Lord still says about him. He says that he raised up David to be king and whom he testified and said about David. And he said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now that would be okay if the Lord uh, said that. And he did in many ways say it really before David got started in life. But David had been dead for maybe a thousand years, and the Lord still affirms in all that we know about David. We know the full record, nothing else to add. And the Lord still affirms that David was a man after God's heart. Now, I think that's, again, why we still draw from the wells of David in life lessons. David was uh, an amazing man. He was, the Bible says that he was a prototype of the future coming Jesus, that Jesus was born as an offspring of David. Uh, David himself was that prototype of King Jesus. Uh, the Lord said at the birth of Jesus in Luke that uh, he will give this Jesus, this Son of God, he will give him the throne of David. So a lot of significance about David's life, a man after God's own heart. One of the, um, and there's so many stories when we think about David, but one of the stories that I find very meaningful, and I'm just going to paraphrase, I'm going to tell you two different stories and tie them in uh, here this morning. But this is an early account of David. And again, it won't be on the screen, so you may want to just make a note of it and read it later. And uh, most of it, well, the story is between 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 30, kind of in there so you can read it later. And here, here's what's going on. David, as you know, has been anointed and called of God to be the next king over Israel. The current king, King Saul, is uh, after his life. He's jealous. He's, uh, he has David on a hit list, and he's after David's uh, very existence. And so David... Uh, finally, in order to just survive, uh, takes uh, his, his family and, uh, and 600 men or more follow him, and they basically go into hiding uh, from King Saul. They're not trying to kill King Saul. They, David is putting that in the Lord's hands, but he's just trying to survive. And one of the ways for a season that he survives is David actually crosses over and goes to work, if you will, fighting for the enemy, for the Philistines. Uh, he and his men function as kind of soldiers of fortune. And <clears throat> kind, of in, uh, kind of in a trade, uh, David uh, and his men will fight for the, the Philistines in, or, in return that they will be kept safe from King Saul. And King Saul has the massive army of Israel and they're looking for David. And so David is uh, made a deal with a, with a son of a king, the son of the king of Gath. His name is Achish. And they kind of make a deal where he will uh, kind of live among them and fight and do whatever he needs to do, and they'll keep him safe from King Saul. 
Now, over time, this kind of worked out. David and his men were uh, certainly great warriors. They were great men of fighters and skill. And uh, over time, uh, this kind of worked out to the point that the Philistines grew suspicious of David. And uh, at one point, they decided that uh, things were a little too uh, risky to keep David in among them. And Achish, who is kind of his cover as the son of the king of Gath, uh, essentially tells David, look, I, I, you know, the pressure's too much. You're going to have to go back. In fact, you're going to have to go back over into the territory of Israel in Ziklag where he kind of held home base. That's where uh, his family was. That's where the 600 plus soldiers, they had their family. That was kind of their base camp that they had held. But that was, that was on the other side and that was in Israel territory. And so the king of, of uh, this Achish rather said, pressure's too much, you're going to have to leave uh, I can't, you're too hot to handle. The men are suspicious of you. So David and his men go back to home base in Ziklag, and when they go back, they're shocked at what they find. Now again, there's no email, there's no FaceTime. They had no clue of what had happened. And when they went back, they found that essentially everything had been wiped out, that a rival enemy, the Amalekites, had come in and plundered and destroyed and literally had kidnapped wives, children, families of not only David, but of his soldiers. They were all gone. The place was a disaster. And you can imagine that the horror that they experienced when they came in to that camp. And we're going to pick it up just on the screen Everything's gone, and we're going to pick it up and just read a few verses to kind of get a, a sense of what is happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against, uh, against the Negev and against Ziklag. That was just kind of on their, their trail of destruction. They had overcome Ziklag and Burnet. Remember, this is the home camp where David and his families remained while he was in, in, in the, among the Philistines. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Can you imagine what they were feeling? David's two wives, yes, he had multiple wives, something God never uh, authorized, but in that culture it was common. God never sanctioned any type of polygamy, but it was... Uh, reality of the culture. And David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam, you tried it any better, of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And you remember the widow of Nabal, that story. Everything, everything is a loss. Not only, I mean, they weren't killed as family and the family of the soldiers, but they had been taken captive and who knows what is being done as part of the Amalekites taking the spoils. And everything is lost, but, you know, it gets worse. Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people, those men who were with him that came back to the loss of families, were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. David's in a tough spot. I mean, one, he's under the daily constant threat of being killed by Saul. He's been kicked out of kind of this safe harbor uh, that he's been hanging out and fighting among the Philistines, the enemy. He's actually made an alliance. And they kicked him out. They rejected him. And now these loyal soldiers, these band of brothers are saying what? 
This is all your fault. If we had not followed you, we wouldn't be in this mess. We'd have our families, we'd be at peace, blah, blah, blah. But here we are. David, you could imagine, is pretty low, broken, rejected, defeated, vulnerable. But notice how David responded. This is the latter part of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Man, don't miss that. Broken, defeated, rejected. Your friends are now ready to kill you. And what did David do? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And if you go on to read, you'll see that he inquired of the Lord as to what he should do. But see, David here was at a crossroads of his brokenness. He made a choice. He made a choice to run and flee, abandon, fight these guys, to defend, whatever it is. But you know what David did? And I like that it says he strengthened himself. <clears throat> he didn't have anybody. Now later, if you read the verses, he, uh, Abiathar the priest was among them. But he didn't have anybody. He had the priest of the Lord, and I don't, there's no record the priest wanted to kill him. Maybe he did. But he inquired of the Lord, and he strengthened himself. Now, I always find that very telling as an amazing insight into the heart of David. Remember, David's a man after God's heart. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, keep that story in mind, and fast forward now 25 years. 25 years. David is now king. King Saul is dead. He's gone. And at this point in David's history and in the life of Israel, things are well. Things are good. 2 Samuel 7, 1 says that Israel and David, uh, God gave them rest from all the enemies that surrounded them. The nation was prospering. David's reputation was growing as a, as a king. Israel was now a a dominant fighting power uh, not to be meddled with. David is at the pinnacle of his power, prestige, popularity, prosperity, reputation being known throughout. He's drawing up plans to build God a temple there in Jerusalem, the city of David as we know it. He's going to build this magnificent edifice of a temple that would be the center place, the center point of the nation where they would be gathered to worship the Lord. Uh, things are running smooth. A well-operated and, and smooth machine. And it's in this context, 25 years after the incident that we just read about where they returned to Ziklag, now David is doing well. And it's in this context that probably the most well-known defeat of David's life took place. And I'm sure you've already guessed that. That was when David wasn't the Philistines that brought defeat. It was his own sin, his own self, that brought defeat into his own life. It's in that context of things doing well. And that's the context of when David committed adultery with another married woman by the name of Bathsheba, not his wife, and he committed adultery. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba has all the ingredients for a Netflix series. Think about it. Sex, power, deceit, religion. We always love a story of a preacher gone bad, right? Terrible. But it's true. Religion, murder, cover-up. I mean, you know, that's a binge-watchable show. That's what's going on here. And because of David's adultery, Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. We got a problem, Houston. Right? So David, this man of power, can do anything, decides, I know what I'll do. I'll 
cover it up. And he tries to engineer a situation where her husband comes back from the army for a season, hoping that maybe that their time together, he could say that she's pregnant with his child, and that doesn't work out. Long story short, you know what he does? He orchestrates circumstances to have Uriah, her husband, who's a loyal soldier to David, what, is she, what does he orchestrate to have happen to him? He orchestrates to have him killed, orders him to be put in the very front of the battle, guaranteeing his death. Done deal. Things are covered. We're good to go. Get back to that temple building. Get back to the plans, right? Well, you know what? God had a whole different agenda. God had a man, even though David was his man, but God had a man in David's inner circle by the, man, by the name of Nathan. I won't tell you this. You can read it in 2 Samuel 12, but you know Nathan comes in to where David is. Now, this may seem, you know, we've told this story so much, we uh, think that, um, uh, go back one, I'm not ready to read that one quite yet, sorry. You know, think about it, even though Nathan is a prophet of God, you don't just willy-nilly go into the court of the king and tell him especially something that they think they've done in secret. And you're going to reveal this to their face. Well, Nathan was more fearful of God than he was of David. And so he went in and he starts out by telling him a little story. He tells him a little story that in essence is a story about a powerful man who took advantage of a less powerful man. And David's emotions were aroused at the injustice of this man that would take advantage of a poor man and take his, one of his animals and use it. And just the horrible, David was incensed at the injustice. And David says he was just ready to go after him and have him executed. And Nathan, and you can put that scripture up now in 2 Samuel, said to David, You, you, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Verse 8. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. Remember, uh, David united the kingdom. Now they were one. And if this were too little, the Lord says, I would, have add, I would add to you so, add to you as much more. Verse 9. Speaking through Nathan, the Lord says, Why? Have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And in verse 13, and this is what is worth paying attention to, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. You see, we start out by talking about how the Lord said David was a man after God's own heart. And because he was a man after God's own heart, it, didn't not, it does not mean any more than hopefully we have a desire, we have a heart after God. It does not mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that we will never commit sin, perhaps, and heaven forbid, even the sins of David that he committed. But what did David do when he was confronted and God exposed him? What was his response? Now, as king, he could have had Nathan carried off and said, I'm going to cut your tongue out if you say anything. I mean, this is the man, this is the king of Israel. He would have had servants that were beholden to him. And by the way, I'm sure this adultery and all this affair, you know, we call it in our term, all this 
I'm sure it was well known among the palace. You know, they have their own little circle of gossip. It wasn't that secretive. But they didn't dare say anything about it. That's what David could have done to Nathan. I mean, the king threatened Jeremiah and threw Jeremiah in jail because he didn't like the way Jeremiah prophesied. But what did David do? What did a man after God's own heart do? He said, David, Lord, yeah, yes, I own this. I did this. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, for purposes that don't, aren't for us right now, Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. But then if you read it, he said, but it doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences. And the consequences were pretty severe in David's life. A dark day in the life of Israel and for David. Two stories. But I thought about those two stories this week. As the Lord was, I was thinking about worship and our, or our theme. And sometimes the Lord will sometimes give me a title to a message without, and i got to figure out the rest. Some of the times the Lord will just give me a title, and, and that's what happened here, and I'll share that in a minute. But two of these stories, the reason I put those together is because they give an insight into how David responded at two of the most broken periods of his life. One that wasn't necessarily because of his doing, and one because of his sinful actions, but irregardless of the context and the circumstances of the brokenness in David's life, we get a sense of how David responds, and what's really interesting about this last event is that we actually, as he, as he uh, went before the Lord, the Lord, and we learn that, is that we actually learn and know what he said, how he prayed. How he fought. You know how we know that? Because Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written as a consequence of what happened with David's sin of adultery. We have that on record. But it's a record of David. David was a worshiper. David was a lover of God. David was a songwriter. Most of the psalms are written by his hand. And so in Psalm 51, we actually get inside his heart and soul and listen to what he's saying to God and what God is saying back to him. Keep in mind, this is a man after God's own heart. And just to kind of get to the the punchline, if you will, first, and we'll unpack some things this morning. But Psalm 51, 15, in the middle of this psalm where David is just pouring his heart out to God, what does he want from God? Not God, rescue me out of this mess. God, redeem my reputation. God, restore to me my honor and everything that I've lost because of my stupidity and what I did. What does he pray? Look at Psalm 51, verse 15. He prays, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What is he praying? He's saying, God, I want to worship you unhindered, unfettered again. David was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't after God's stuff that he gives us. He loved God because he was God. Quite different than the way oftentimes we think about worship. What is he after in the depths of his despair and brokenness? David wants to get back to that place that he did when he was just a kid out there tending his father's sheep. What did he do to pass the time? He wrote songs of worship to the Lord. He's got all this stuff. Power, money, prestige, wealth, fame. He's got all this. And you know what? In a moment, he blew it. And there would be consequences. 
But what is David's biggest concern? Was God, I don't want to be hindered from my relationship and my ability to worship you. God, open my lips. And if you open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. Right in the middle of a psalm written in brokenness. A man after God's own heart. The series that we've been in for a few weeks is called The Heart of Worship. The Heart of Worship. Different aspects of worship. And this morning, I want us to take a brief look at Psalm 51, with this as a backdrop. And the title of this morning's message is, How to Worship God When We Are Broken. See, it's easy to worship God when things are doing well. Feel good, happy, had a good hair day, right? Feel good, job's good, everybody's happy. Didn't get an argument on the way to church. I mean, you know, when things are well, it's easy to engage. But I suspect that many of us know what it's like, and maybe even right now, many of you, and I suspect many of you are at places, and I use the word broken because that has a little bit more broadness, irregardless of the nature of it. Your brokenness certainly may not be anything near what David experienced. Your brokenness might be disappointment, profound disappointment, betrayal, disloyalty, loneliness, grief, the death of a loved one that you just can't, you just can't move beyond. Depression, rejection. And by the way, we never move beyond the death of a loved one, but the grief that sometimes is so debilitating and controlling is what I'm referring to. Depression, rejection, the end of a relationship that you highly valued, strife in your family, discouragement. You see, your brokenness and my brokenness come in all different shapes and sizes, don't they? But nevertheless, it's in those broken moments where we feel like we, it's, it, things that, these are broken things that roll in like the dark clouds of summer, those summer rain clouds of darkness that will start coming in on a daily basis here in Florida. But unlike the Florida dark clouds that are gone after about an hour or two, these dark clouds just linger and stay. And go on from day to day to day to weeks, months. And you think, is this the way life is going to be from this point forward? And what do we normally do? I suspect we don't normally do what we see David doing. We usually, not in all cases, but we usually do the very opposite. Instead of running to God... We run and turn away from God. Our heart is wounded. We're broken. And we think that somehow God might even be, we suspect it, I can't prove it, but even perhaps God is the blame for this situation. Circumstances are overwhelming. Scripture is just page, words on a page. Might as well be the New York Times. Prayer is empty and just seems to bounce off the walls. It's perfunctory and doesn't seem to be, have any meaning. Church seems unsafe and so I isolate myself. But remember, the man after God's own heart, the person after God's own heart, what did he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. Both situations, different ways that he had to strengthen himself in the Lord. What did he do? He turned to his only avenue, source of life and hope in the depths of his despair 
and brokenness, and he sought the Lord. And I think maybe this morning as we briefly look at some things in Psalm 51 on how to worship God when we're broken, we might, we might just get some encouragement and learn some things. Now, this may be a real, a real word for some of you today, right now. And then some of you, it may just be, you know, it's not where I'm at. Well, take notes. Because it will someday. May not today, may not tomorrow, but if you're a Christian, I assure you, I assure you, you'll be there. You'll be there. Because the Christian life, if you found, is not just a straight line from birth to death, is it? It's ups and downs and curves and turns and three steps forward. Two steps back, right? But all in the midst of that journey, what do we know? God is faithful. And God will never leave us nor forsake us. And this morning, I want you to look with me at several principles here. Seven. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. Otherwise, we might be here till three. Or I will be here till three. Then most of you won't be. But... But we'll go through these. And actually, I came up with about 10 or 11 or 12, and I just cut it back to a godly number like seven, you know. Uh, just to... But there's a lot here, and again, I realize that not everybody and most of us, maybe all of us certainly, do not have, are not using these words in the way David used them, but I think we'll find, if we remember the context of these two stories... That in the brokenness, where I feel that worship is just meaningless and perfunctory, maybe God will give us some insight on a path to worshiping God when we're broken. Notice first of all, number one is in verse one. And that is refocus on the grace of God. Refocus on the grace of God. When you're broken... And you put in maybe some other words that you want to use there. We need to refocus on the grace of God. Psalm 51, the first part of verse 1, he prays in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. Aren't you glad that God is a gracious God? That God is full of grace? We begin in the midst of our brokenness and our despair by refocusing, recalibrating our hearts and minds on the mercy and grace of God. Where would we be without the mercy of God? Where would we be without the grace of God in my life? He is a faithful God. Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, as the hymn says. How has he been gracious and merciful? Well, listen, if you're a believer, you only have to make one stop, and that's the fact that he gave Jesus Christ to redeem you from your rebellion and your sin. He gave Jesus Christ to save you. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. He set you in right relationship. What greater act of grace and mercy could God do to any of us the fact that he took such people that were undeserving of grace and has bestowed upon them the lavishness of the mercies in his son Jesus Christ. We only need to stop right there. You know, we might think, well, I got a nice house, car, blah, blah, blah. All of that, guys, can be gone tomorrow. All of that can be gone tomorrow. But you know something that won't be gone tomorrow? That'll be there today, tomorrow, next week, next year, in all eternity is the security of knowing that my life, as Colossians 3.3 3 says, that my life is hidden with Christ in God. That the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy, rich in mercy 
because of the great love which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Lamentations 3.22, Jeremiah says, the, living Bible, the New Living Translation says, the faithful love of the Lord never ends, His mercies never cease. They are new every morning. Secondly, not only should we refocus on the grace of God, but secondly, be, have the reassurance of God's love. How do we worship God in the midst of our brokenness? Refocus on the marvelous grace of God and also re, the reassurance of God's love in my life. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Aren't you glad the love of the Lord is steadfast? It's not wavering. It's not fickled. Did you ever date somebody in high school that was fickled? You know what fickled means? You're the romance of their life until next week they have another romance to their life. And you're left in the dust. Right? God is not fickled. He has a steadfast love. You know why? Because that steadfast love is anchored not in me but in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He can never betray the covenantal commitment that was bought by the blood of Christ. Unwavering love. Psalm 40, verse 11. <coughs> As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Look at this. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me will ever preserve me. Psalm 136. Some of it will be on the screen. There's 26 verses. I'm not going to read 26 verses, but you ought to make note of Psalm 136. Because in Psalm 136, you have an endless repetition about the steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now, I'm going to do something. Some of you uh, have done this in, uh, in churches where you have uh, uh, readings, responsive readings. So every time, I'm going to just do nine verses. There's 26, but we won't do those. But every time we come to the last part, it's the same. For His steadfast love endures forever. I want you to say that together as a congregation. Can we do that? A little interaction here. A little... Uh, you know, all right? So let's do this again. I'll read the, the white, you read the yellow. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over night. It's like the psalmist is saying that just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow is the steadfast love of God. Amen. Now there's, what, 20 or 19, 18 more verses. You need to rehearse. And by the way, in Hebrew and Greek and other languages, one of the devices that is used in the language is repetition. And the reason repetition is used is for emphasis. Now, when you read something, if I want to emphasize something, I might put it in bold print, italics, underline it. You know, when I was a kid and, you know, my mom said, wrote a note and said, be home at 10 p.m. Sometimes 10 p.m. was underlined with great passion. That was an emphasis. Not 1028. 
I got it. I understood. God is making repetition. Remember Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Repetition. Jesus, when he was going to, he made several statements and he said to King James, verily, verily. More updated is truly, truly. Literally in the Greek, it's amen, amen. Why is that? It's like pay attention. This is really, really, really important. And what does the psalm do? Psalm 136 takes 26 verses that if you didn't catch it in verse 1, hopefully by 26 you'll know that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And why are we we talking about that? Because we need that reassurance of God's love. And sometimes in the brokenness and the despair, it's so easy to fall into that trap that God just doesn't love me anymore. God doesn't care. I always think about Paul at the last letter that we have of his life and ministry. That's 2 Timothy 4. In the very latter part, uh, or 2 Timothy, but in chapter 4, towards the end there, if you remember, Paul is saying about how about those who have left him in the ministry. and Paul's in prison in Rome, by the way, when he's writing this. And he says, and names names, Demas and others that have abandoned and left him, turned their backs on him. He's alone, he says. And he says, no one would have been with me unless the Lord stood by my side. The steadfast love of the Lord. Never ceases. Never changes. So we need that reassurance if we are going to be worshipers that worship in and through our brokenness. Thirdly, we need to be worshipers who receive God's forgiveness. We're receiving God's forgiveness. I remember the context of what is being written here by David. This is a this is a confession. This is a broken uh, prayer psalm that he's writing. Verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And I recognize that our brokenness, whatever the nature of it, isn't always related to sin. But listen, let's be honest. Oftentimes, it is connected to sin. It is connected to sin. God will not, cannot bless any more than he could do it with David and just say, well, you know what, everybody has a weak spot. No. We cannot, we cannot harbor sin as, as believers. Now, probably only two of you, three I would be shocked, know who the name Judson Cornwall is. But in one of his books, he writes this, He says, forgiveness is essential to worship, for we cannot worship until we are in the presence of God. The psalmist knew this, for he wrote, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me, and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's Psalm 66. You see, forgiveness is essential to enter into worship. And so for the believer, we have this tremendous promise given to us in the Word of God. And it certainly is there for anybody not to in any way think that when you become a Christian, you are going to be sinless. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to sin. You don't have to choose and make sinful choices. You don't have to do that. But as long as we still remain in this this body, we don't have a a glorified body. We will still battle sin. And you will battle sin till you draw your last breath. But God has given us a tremendous word in 1 John 1. Remember when we covered this? In 1 John, 1 John 1. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If, he, if we say, if we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 is written to believers. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. You should mark that in your Bible. Circle, He is faithful. When I am faithless, He is faithful. That's the, that's the very bedrock of my confidence that I, become, I come before one who is willing and able and, and, and gracious in His forgiveness to me as a child of God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, before we go to the next principle, I want you to notice something. Notice the three principles we just covered. They'll be on the screen. Refocus on the grace of God, reassurance of God's love, receive God's forgiveness. And when I saw that, I thought it was interesting that why that there's something critically fundamental that these things are affirmed at the beginning up front because all of these things relate to the character and nature of God. And when we're broken, one of the things that often is the result in our brokenness is our view of God, His grace, His love, His forgiveness becomes skewed and doubtful. God, if you really cared, if you really loved me, if you really wanted me to be happy, and you know what, if you can't think of something, Satan will help you fill in the blanks. Remember in the Garden of Eden, what was Satan's strategy? Fundamentally, it was what? It wasn't to eat a piece of fruit off a tree. That was the consequence. It was to undermine the goodness and nature of God. Did God really say? Because he knows, guys, that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. And he's such an ogre. He is so envious and can't handle he doesn't want you to enjoy the benefits that he has. You can't really trust him. Isn't that what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness? You're the son of God and your father's letting you go hungry. Turn these stones into bread. You're the son of God and he's going to let you die? Oh, Jesus, all you got to do is just jump off the pinnacle of the temple and angels will capture you and everybody will see your glory that you're the son of God and you won't have to go to the cross. Jesus, I tell you what. If you just acknowledge me and my authority and worship me, you don't even have to get on your knees. You just kind of give me a little nod. That'll work. And everything will be yours. Because your father, he doesn't want you to have anything. You can't really trust him. You see how in those moments of vulnerability and brokenness, truth and the character of God oftentimes becomes maligned. And that's why it's so critical that we refocus on his grace, his love, is forgive us, forgiveness. Number four, and this ties into this next principle that we see in verse six, rebuild the truth of God's word in my life. Rebuild. I, I, I know in my life, oftentimes in those moments where life, my spiritual life seems like a desert, that the word of God is not having the, the life and reality. It's not a living word. What does he pray in verse 6? Behold, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That's why those first three are so important. Because it's the word of God. Jesus said, Thy word is truth. 
the truth of God's Word. Some of you haven't picked up your Bibles to just read anything in it for weeks. Don't depend on what happens on Sunday morning. Feed yourself. Take responsibility. You say, well, they're just, as you said, those words are just, they're just lifeless words. Well, you know what? Read that Psalm 136 where you're just repeating. You know what? Sometimes you just have to say the words. Let it come out of your mouth so that it's coming out of your mouth to let it sink down into your very heart. Sometimes you just have to say the Word of God and let the Word of God do its job because the Word of God is life. Marvry, what you guys have been through, you just had to speak the word of life because reality was hell. You just had to speak reality of the word because that and that rebuilding, does that happen overnight? No, but you can't neglect. He said, You're, you delight in truth in the inward being, not just perfunctory. Psalm 25 verse 5, lead me in your truth, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It revives the soul. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Colossians 3, verse 2, says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Rebuild the truth of God into your life. Fifth, restore the joy of the Lord. There is no joy. Lord, restore the joy of the Lord in my life. That's what he's asking. Verse 10 of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me, restore to me the joy of the Lord. Restore unto me the security of the presence in your life. Restore unto me the joy of what I experienced when I first became a believer. Remember that? Some of you forgot how excited you were that God in His mercy and His grace would love you and choose you for himself. Restore in me, O oh God, the confidence that you uphold and sustain my life in the darkest and toughest moments of my brokenness. I won't read it now, but Philippians is a tremendous testimony of the joy of the Lord in brokenness. Paul is in jail. And yet, at least three, four times, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says at the end, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because he realized that he's not letting his life be weighed down because of the circumstances. And I'm not saying the circumstances are not overwhelming. But he's in jail. No hope of getting out. But he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Lord, restore to me the joy of the Lord. Sometimes we think, Lord, make me happy. And that's not necessarily the same thing. We get happy because, you know, things go our way and had a good meal and bills are paid and whatever. But all those things, those are built upon what? Circumstances. Guess what? Your circumstances can change like that this afternoon. Where is your joy going to be? And see, joy is not some giddy... Uh, you ever see people... Now, I hope this doesn't happen to anybody. I'm sorry, but... You ever see somebody just walking down the street? Now, maybe they're listening to something. I don't know. And they're just laughing to themselves. I think, well, no comment. But I see that and I'm like, what a nut. 
Now, maybe they're listening, so I don't know. But I get, you know, I'm nervous around people who are just laughing for no reason, you know. I'm not talking about some giddy joy. You slam your hand on the door and you're like, praise God. You're a nut. I'm not thinking about praising God when it happens, right? That hurts. I'm not talking about just some giddy mind. No, a joy that in the midst of the darkness, the light of Christ still shines. Because the joy of the Lord is something no circumstance, this world, nothing can rob my joy. The only way my joy can be taken is if I give it away. Restore to me the joy. Number six, request your need to God. Jesus, or James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. We read this earlier, verse 15. Oh Lord, what does he pray? Oh Lord, open my lips. Sometimes the despair and the brokenness is so dark and deep, we can't even talk. Open my lips, not to defend my honor, not to get me out of this mess, but God, open my lips that I might praise you. That I might. See, David is a worshiper at heart. Psalm 34 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And the last one. Is rest in your security with the Lord. One of the things that affects. Is that we don't have a sense of security. In who we are in Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says for you. Del- you for, for you will not delight in sacrifice. That was the means of the worship and. That setting in the Old Testament. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. In other words. All the religious activities. That perhaps might on the surface appear. To be genuine worship. He says. You're not into that. What does he say? The sacrifices. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God. Are what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, the security that we rest in is not in the treadmill of this works mindset. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. Or, you know what, I I really just, and I need to do something religious to show God how much I'm really sincere, so I'm going to do some grand thing. God doesn't want your grand thing. You know what He wants? He wants a broken and contrite heart that's moldable, pliable, tender. Why is David a man after God's own heart? Why? Because in spite of all his life experiences, good, bad, really bad, what? He had a heart that was moldable, pliable, and tender, and could be shaped by God. And God can shape your life in the broken seasons Just as much as he can in any other season in your life. But he wants your heart. He wants you. We talk about the security of the Lord. Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. As we learned in Hebrews on Wednesday, you want Jesus to be between you and the Father. You want, you want Jesus 
to be your representative. You don't want Moses, you want Jesus. In verse 35, who shall separate us? He asks that rhetorically. He's not really explaining. He kind of throws out tribulation, distress, persecution. I mean, he starts naming all this stuff. He said, who? I want to know their names. Because there is no name that will separate you from the security that is ours in Christ. And then he drops down to verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, confident, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor height, nor depth, or anything in all creation shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Rest in the security of the Lord. And sometimes that's the only place you can be, is just resting in that broken season. But one thing you may not know a lot of how to, this is going to get fixed or how this is going to happen. You may not know any of the answers, but you know this because you have it on the surety of the Word of God. You know that your life is secure in God through Christ. Sometimes seasons of brokenness. The reality is sometimes, like David, sometimes they're self-inflicted. But sometimes God allows circumstances and situations to come into our life with an intent to draw us to a place of spiritual hunger. We're talking about worship. Spiritual hunger. That will drive us to Him. In fact, the Bible says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When Moses was giving his last words before Israel. Before they would enter into the land of Canaan. The promised land. And he's, re- and he's rehearsing and going back over God's faithfulness. And look at what he says in verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says in verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you. 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Verse 3. Now look at this. And He humbled you, and He let you, what? He let you hunger in order that he might be the provider who fed you with that manna. Manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sometimes the brokenness, not all the time, and I realize this is very general, but sometimes, many times, God allows and actually causes seasons of brokenness into our life, to come into our life. Why? So that, like James says, when the trials come, the testing of our faith, It forces us to seek Him, the bread of life. It takes me in my hunger. God, sometimes God allows us to hunger in order that we, that He, He might fill us. Are you broken? Be filled with the goodness of God. Be filled with the goodness of God. And in spite of everything that David left us good and bad, he reminds us that whether you're up or you're down, God declared that he was a man that pursued his heart, pursued the will of God for his life. And even when he was defeated, even when he was 
so down he had to look up to see bottom. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And he sought to allow God through my brokenness to teach me to worship you because you're God, not to get me out of my mess. See, that's, that's a place that I'm, I'm not at. And I doubt many of you are at. That we want to worship God merely for who He is. And not for what He will do for us or what He'll get us out of. But such worshipers, Jesus said, what? The Father is looking, seeking. I want to be found to be that worshiper. That my brokenness is actually a gift from God. That pushes me into the reality of his presence. In a way that success and prosperity and well-being could never ever do. God make us such people after your own heart.